Stories matter. Stories are important. They tell us where we've come from. They remind us about what is valuable. They help clarify our future. I think faith was here a long, long time ago that God established himself here in this nation long before any of us were here. And that faith existed and exists today. I thought, I don't care what it costs me, I'm gonna see what these guys have got that I haven't got. For the first time in my life, I met a, uh, a priest who had a social conscience, and suddenly it was as if I saw for the first time, this is what Jesus is like. He'd written a letter to his dad at 21, said, you know, Dad, if the gospel of Jesus is the real thing, uh, we need to find a way of expressing it to the people of the bush. It's no good building churches out here. They need hospitals. I went to church with my new friend, Lisa, and I heard the gospel. I heard about Jesus. So I prayed right there on the street, and no word of a lie, right on that bench over there. I asked Jesus into my heart, and in an instant, I started weeping and crying. And it was like, you know what? I became that little boy again that just wanted that father. It's like my father in heaven came down and just said, son, it's all going to be all right. In Faith Runs Deep, we unearth the stories of faith that have helped shape Australia. Join us as we drive across Australia in an iconic Holden Ute to explore the stories at the heart of our culture and see how the followers of Jesus have influenced Australia. We will discover stories of faith from history and today of people with deep personal faith who have profoundly shaped this nation. Australia lives off Christian capital to this day. The very first words of our constitution, you know, humbly trusting in almighty God, is woven into the very fabric of who we are as a country. Billy, Billy said afterwards that he'd never come across spiritual hunger like it in Australia. You can tell thousands of stories of people who, you know, had their whole life transformed and, and started new lineages of faith in Australia. That's the consequence of meeting Jesus, is that you want to do what he did. You want to be his instrument, if you will, for, for good in the world. I believe when it comes to faith in this nation, uh, th there's an opportunity, a, a great hope that we're not dealing with a group of people who hate Christianity or hate God. We're actually dealing with people who don't understand Christianity, who don't understand who Jesus is and what he's done. For me, I think for faith to run deep in Australia, it starts in families. They changed the lives of dozens and dozens of kids who had no other opportunity and almost nobody knows. That's, that's a remarkable thing. One day I heard this thump and there was a tree just by the back fence there and it just fell over and it didn't pull, it didn't pull a root out of the ground. It had rotted out right underneath. That's something that I don't think we want to see happen to our culture because the, the deep roots of Christianity, they're really critical for the health of of the nation. Join us on this journey as we discover where faith runs deep in Australia.
Thanks, Dave, for the welcome, uh, Nathan, for the invitation, and it's been a joy to be with you today on Father's Day. This morning, I shared around uh, the Father's Day a message on Father's Day. Tonight, I want to share, talk about this notion that faith runs deep in our nation, and we're going to get to the fact that faith was here right from the beginning, that a second chance is actually hardwired into the DNA of our nation, brought to us by people of faith, and that faith is transformational. But one of the things that I said in that that, that that resonates all the way through this series, that's incredibly important to what we're talking about here, is that stories matter and that stories are important. Now, this was, this was demonstrated today at Anzac Day. Now, I know that you're a city where your sporting allegiances are split in the, in the kind of football world, and some of you will know something about AFL. And some of you will may even follow AFL, and you might have followed a game that, were, that occurred in, on uh, Anzac Day earlier this year, the traditional match between Collingwood and Essendon at Anzac Day this year. And on Anzac Day this year, 95,000 people at the MCG, uh, a, a detail that you don't really care about, but let me tell you anyway, the Collingwood were behind by 28 points, uh, got up in the, the final, final quarter and win the game. And at the end of the game, the, the captain of Collingwood, a young man, his name's Darcy Moore, Darcy Moore made this short speech. And what's really intriguing is this is a footballer, not a history lecturer or a student of Australian culture. This is just a footballer. And he gives, and you can watch this on YouTube, that's when I saw it, because I read about it and thought, that's remarkable. And I watched it on YouTube. And I'm not going to read the whole speech to you, but let me talk about what Darcy Moore said rolls up to the microphone and basically he wanted to thank and mention the men and women who have been serving our country at home and abroad. Later on he said to the veterans, there are over 600,000 veterans in this country who have returned from service. We extend our thanks to you. Then he later on goes and he wraps it up by saying this. And then finally to the families of those serving and those veterans, too often your stories go untold. And on behalf of the Collingwood Football Club, Note that, not Essendon, I don't care about Essendon, only the Collingwood Football Club. On behalf of the Collingwood Football Club, we just want to acknowledge the pain of war that runs through so many families across this country. It's an honour for us to run out and play our game in honour of you and your service. Now, is that not a remarkable speech? Now, I think it's remarkable because I, once I grew up as a kid, I can still remember growing up as a kid and going to Anzac Day as in New South, regional New South Wales I turned up to Anzac Day and I actually said, thought this. I thought, you know, this will die one day, really, this celebration. You know, as we get older and all the Second World War vets die off and then, you know, the, the, the Vietnam, Vietnam War has a kind of mixed heritage and we're not that interested. And I think at some point, somebody will kind of shut the door on Anzac Day. How wrong was that? Have you been to Anzac Day? Seriously, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people pouring rain at dawn service, they're all there. And, they're, and so what's going on there? What's Darcy Moore doing here? He's telling a story of the narrative of our nation. He's telling a story about the things that matter. And the Anzac story has become foundational to who we are as a people and as a nation. And people don't turn up because they personally know somebody who was an Anzac, clearly not, or even a First or Second World War person, or somebody in the Vietnamese War. There's something about honouring those who gave service to our nation, and it's a story that we keep telling. Stories matter. Stories form who we are as a nation. Stories form who we are as a people, 
as a family. When we get together, now you had uh, Father's Day gatherings over this weekend. There's a good chance, here's my guess, there's a good chance at the Father's Day gathering that you went to that you didn't pontificate about the esoteric political uh, 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 vicissitudes of our country. You probably told stories. What happened last week? What happened last year? And when we get together as families, we keep, we tell stories because stories carry values. The crazy thing is when we get together at something like Christmas, we get together for, for Christmas, we tell stories of the last year, and you know what's bizarre? We tell the same stories we told last year, and we keep telling the same stories, and nobody says, well, not in my family, nobody says, seriously, grandma, five times, have we got no new stories? There's this notion of that's how we pass on values. That's how we create who we are as a people. That's how we create the narrative of society. This church has stories that you should keep telling. The Pete Sweetman and team decided a number of years ago to start this church, to have a go at planning a church that you used to meet in the smaller auditorium, that slowly over the years you paid a ridiculous amount of money for a bunch of houses to be the church that you are today. And yet wouldn't it be sad that in decades' time nobody knew the name Peter Sweetman? Wouldn't it be sad if nobody remembered the beginning of this church because the values and the vision that are held in the stories. And you know, what's interesting about a church like this, what's interesting about your family is actually true of us as a nation. The stories that we tell contain the values that are important and they create a, they create a narrative and a culture of who we are as a nation. Here's my question to you. What are the stories... Australians have been telling for the last 20 years about the church in Australia. And most of us know the answer to that. They're not great stories. And what's happening is the narrative of our nation because of the stories that we tell is shifting the cultural foundations of who we are. And it's a bit like taking the church and shoving it to the edges. To say that's for the weird group on the edge but it's not who we are as a nation. We're a different group of people. And yet, that doesn't reflect our history. And the intriguing thing is that what people do with stories actually helps to shape who we are as a nation. And people, sometimes it happens accidentally, but often it happens on purpose. There's a guy called Rod Dreyer who's written a book called um, Live Not By Lies. Now, this is not the point of the book, but in Live Not By Lies, what Rod Dreyer does is he reflects on, a, on Poland as a nation in the Second World War. The Nazis went, went kind of east over Poland and, and ruled it for a time, and then when the Second World War finished, the Soviet Union came west, as it were, and encapsulated the, Poland to, into the, the Soviet bloc. And the interesting thing for both the Nazis and, and for the Soviet Union, but certainly what Dreyer says with the Nazis, that they didn't just want to politically and militarily run Poland. What they wanted to do was to, to change what it meant to be Polish, to change the, the, the narrative, what it meant to be Polish. And what they tried to do was to take away their stories and take away their faith. And what the Polish people would, had to do was to hang on to their stories, to hold on to their faith, and to hold on to what it meant to be Polish. In fact, what they needed to do, and Rodrea comes up with this little phrase, what they needed to do was to create fortresses of memory. You know, that phrase has become really important to me. A fortress of memory. Where are the fortresses of memory 
of faith in our nation. They're here. They're in your families. They're in RI teachers. They're in that series that we produced. They're in great books about our nation. We need to create fortresses of memory. Because when, our, when we lose our memory and we lose our stories, we can lose our faith. Now, just in case you're thinking, oh, that's a modern, modern kind of concept, Carl, that, you know, it's, it's happened since the Second World War, very new. Have a look at Judges chapter 2 with me. If you have your Bible or you grab out your phone, I'll assume you're not on Facebook, and you grab out your phone and you, you look at uh, Judges chapter 2. And Judges chapter 2 is an interesting little story because as a potted history, I'll make this short, you know that God's people, the children of Abraham, Israel, were in Egypt and they were oppressed. God raised up Moses, led them out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. They were supposed to go straight to the promised land, but because they weren't, they were people who didn't have faith enough to cross into promised land, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then essentially the book of Joshua, which uh, uh, I know Peter Francis is a great guy. Come and, come and listen to Peter introduce Joshua. You'll know that eventually Moses retires I know it's complex, but let's just leave it at that. Moses retires, Joshua gets the leadership, and Joshua leads the people into, into the land. Now, it's a complex and difficult story. There's wars, conflict, difficulty over the next number of years under Joshua's leadership. And then in Judges chapter 2, there's this fabulous picture. The wars are done. It's all finished. Joshua's about to retire. Well, actually, he goes on to, to go to glory, but... Here's what what's said in, in, Joshua, in Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, after Joshua had dismissed the Israelites, they were to take possession of the land, each to their own inheritance. Isn't that a great picture? The wars are done. Joshua's almost finished. They go back to the land. They're taking their inheritance. What a wonderful picture. What could possibly go wrong? And we know what goes wrong, almost everything. But if you look again, if you're following this on, look down to verse 10. After the whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, do you get that? After a whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, that's a really pleasant way of saying they all died. So they all die off, they'd been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who neither knew the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped gods of the peoples around them. And God's anger was kindled. What happened in Judges chapter 2? They lost their story. They lost their history. They lost their heritage. And in the end, they lost their faith. The intriguing thing is that we're, humans are innately spiritual. And uh, in a, in a, I know that you'll be, it'll be bizarre for me to quote Elon Musk, but Elon Musk actually put a quick tweet out in the last six weeks where he's basically said that humans are innately spiritual. When one religion dies, another one raised, is raised up. In a place like Australia, it's not that as we lose the stories of faith, everybody just becomes happy pagans. We just create a new format of religion, a new form of what we follow. A guy called Michael Bird, he lives in, in Melbourne, he teaches at Ridley College. He's written a book called Religious Freedom in, a, in an Age of Secularism. This little quote is not the point of the book, but he actually reflects on what happens in Australia. What, when religion is gone, when Christianity is moved aside, what happens? 
And he basically said, we just create new religions. And this is what he wrote. He said, Marvel superheroes replace saints. Sports stadiums replace cathedrals. Technologists are the new prophets. Activists are the new priests. The absence of God does not lead to an absence of worship. Quite the opposite. People become more driven to worship. But what they worship is what satisfied their desires, irrespective of those desires, are full of virtue or villainy. What is he saying? We just seek after new gods. And as we lose our story, our culture shifts, and we, fight, we follow, chase after a new set of faiths, beliefs, and gods. What do we need to do as the church? Bemoan all of this and say, woe is us? What we need to do is create fortresses of memory. We need to capture the cultural heritage of our nation. And not just because it's a cultural, historical idea, but our nation was created with Christian values at its heart. Now, some of you are thinking, that sounds great, Carl, but I reckon that's a stretch. And many of us have followed the narrative, picked it up, even within church, that we were formed as a nation in the offcuts, the throwaways of England, the criminal class of England. There wasn't enough room in the jails. There were people rotting on the hulks on the Thames. Uh, they'd lost the war of independence with, with America. They couldn't keep sending uh, convicts and, and prisoners and the convict class to America. What would they do? Here's a new idea. We're going to send them to Australia, to New South Wales, to the great Southland that would take six months to get there in a boat and we will dump them there. And if you think about it, that must be the worst start for a nation that you can have. And it's almost the narrative is, and they were godless and secular then, and they're godless and secular now, and there's a straight line between the two, and nothing has changed. And that is not the, the facts. What we need, what we learn as we look at Australia, is that faith does run deep, that it was there right from the very beginning, that the notion of fresh start was a part of our culture given to us early in our, in our nation, and that transformation, that Talia demonstrated tonight in a baptism that Nick and co demonstrated this morning in their baptism still happens, has happened all the way through our people, people, our history. People are transformed by the person of Jesus and continue to be transformed. So what do I mean by it was there from the very beginning? Well, two ways it was there from the beginning and that's what Sandra Dumas, Sandra Dumas, she's an indigenous pastor, her and her husband, Willie, run a church in Tweed Heads. And Sandra Dumas said, Faith was here long before any of us were here. It's been here kind of forever. Now, some of you will be nervous about that. And what she's saying is that the indigenous people of our nation had a deep sense of faith in, in, the, in a creator God. Now, it sounds like syncretism, doesn't it? And yet, what she's saying is actually a biblical concept. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you haven't read Ecclesiastes and you're not in a great mood, don't go home and read it tonight. It's a miserable book. I mean, it's basically it says, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's the theme of the book. That's going to get you home turning the pages, isn't it? And here's the writer of Ecclesiastes, but in the middle of it, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, God has placed eternity in the hearts of humanity. In other words, in the created, in, if we're created by God, there's a sense of God within each of us. 
And we seek out spirituality in, in each of us. And then when Paul in the New Testament writes to the church at Rome, he actually says this when he writes to the church at Rome. He says, For since the creation of God, the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what's been made so that people are without excuse. Paul, Paul is saying, for those who have never heard of Jesus, they, they are judged, as, an, as it were, on the knowledge of God that is evident all around them. And that's what Sandra's saying. But we needed Jesus, Sandra goes on to say, and it's part of her church. And so faith has been here as part of the Indigenous people, the First Nations people of, of Australia. And yet, when, the, when, when Europeans came, when the first fleet came, faith was there right from the very beginning. And it wasn't there just as a kind of religious idea, a hangover of the UK. Faith was actually there as a gospel-minded individual on the first fleet. Now, many of you will know, if you know your history or remember your history, you'll know there's a guy called Richard Johnson who was on the first fleet and he was a chaplain. And there can be an assumption that the fact that Richard Johnson was on the first fleet as a chaplain was that he took a good job with the government with a great retirement plan. You know, it's always good to work with the government. You know, there's a, that's a safety in working for the government. It's probably got a great retirement plan. I'll take the gig as a, as a chaplain, official chaplain on the first fleet. That's not why Richard Johnson was there. When the first fleet, when it was decided to send convicts to Australia, there was somebody in Parliament who was seriously unhappy about that. And his name was William Wilberforce. Now, you'll know the name William Wilberforce. He uh, helped uh, stop the trading in slaves in 1807, and then he stopped slavery in the British Empire in 1833. Keep in mind, it still continued in East Africa, but it stopped in West Africa and it stopped in the British Empire. And, and he was a Christian man following Jesus, and he, his mate, who was the Prime Minister, was William Pitt. And he went to William Pitt and he basically said, really unhappy about, this is a terrible idea of sending people to the other side of the world. But if you're going to insist in sending these people to New South Wales, the other side of the world, we want to choose the chaplain, the representative Jesus on that boat. And William Pitt relented. And so then William Wilberforce looks around for who can be their chaplain. He spoke to John Newton. Now John Newton wrote the hymn, Amazing Grace, incredibly well known for that hymn, but most people don't know, he was a key leader in a church in London. In fact, it's still there, St Mary's Woolnow, just near the Bank of London. You can go and visit if you, if you head to London. And, and he was incredibly well known. And the two of them spoke together and said, who can we put on the, on the first fleet? And John Newton had heard about a guy called Richard Johnson. So he writes a letter to Richard Johnson. He said, Richard, he basically writes this letter and basically says, we want you, William Wilberforce and myself, we want you to be on the first fleet as a chaplain. And Richard Johnson, response to, William, uh, to John Newton at first was, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard. He was not a happy man. He did not want to go. And yet he thought about it further and he thought this, what if God's in this? What if this is God's call on my life? What if God wants me to take the gospel to the ends of the earth? And while he, he then believed that this is what God wanted, but he then had a very difficult conversation. You see, Richard Johnson was engaged to Mary Burton. And he had to go to Mary and ask if they could bring their wedding forward. Guys, can you imagine that conversation? 
We need to get married early because then we're going on a cruise. Like that's, that's a tough conversation. And you know what's remarkable? Richard Johnson and Mary Burton married early. And when the first fleet left England for Australia, there was one married couple on those ships that went. Richard and Mary Johnson. That's part of our heritage. They came here not because it was a good job or a good opportunity. They came here because right from the very beginning, God was placing the gospel at the heart of this nation. And while he didn't feel he was particularly successful, he was followed by Samuel Marsden again. Samuel Marsden has very mixed history, and, and rightly so. Uh, William Cowper became the first kind of pastor, and they were followed by Moravian missionaries, Wesleyan missionaries, the Church Missionary Society, the London Missionary Society, and they started to bring the gospel to this whole part of the globe for the first time. Samuel Marsden was the first person to preach the gospel at the Bay of Islands in New Zealand. There were missionaries who then went from New Zealand into the Pacific Islands. The Pacific Islands were deeply influenced by the person of Jesus, so much so that even today, 90, about 95% of those in the Pacific Islands call themselves Christians. Potentially one of the most Christian parts of the world are the islands north of New Zealand and east of Australia. Why is that the case? Because Richard Johnson with his wife Mary, were, were obedient to the message of Jesus and said, we'll take the message of Jesus to this part of the world. And it created part of our heritage for who we are. Then the second thing is that the idea of a second chance, the idea of a fresh start, the idea that failure is not final was actually part of our earliest history. Lachlan Macquarie was one of our earlier uh, governors in New South Wales uh, and he came at just about 1806 or 7. Now, Lachlan and his, uh, uh, Macquarie and his wife, Elizabeth, uh, godly people who were seeking to follow Jesus uh, in, in, in their values and what they did. Now, in the end, they named an inordinate number of things after themselves. So potentially humility wasn't one of their great strengths. But they came with this heart of, what is it to be a Christian governor? And Lachlan Macquarie and his wife Elizabeth, because they kind of found out on the way out here that they were going to be the governor, and on the way out here, they're sitting there studying God's word and they're asking themselves this question. What would it be, what would it be to be a Christian governor, a follower of Jesus in New South Wales? Now, that's a tough decision now, to be a politician now and ask what it is to be a Christian politician. Imagine when what you've got to do is run a, a colony of convicts who don't really want to be there and neither do all the military personnel who are holding them. And what, you, what uh, Lachlan Macquarie came to was if God gives us a second chance, we should give that to other people. Now, the, you've got to keep in mind that in, at that time there was a sort of philosophical position that if you were a criminal, you were kind of a criminal part of a criminal class and, and criminality, if I can use that term, was sort of baked into your DNA. And so you're a criminal not just because, you know, you made a bad decision, but because that's who you were as a person. And that's why the whole idea of throwing them in jail or sending them to New South Wales, because you can't redeem them. We need to just get rid of them. And there's this idea that you are, you are noted as a failure and a criminal for the rest of your life. That's your future. And Logan Macquarie looked at that culture and looked at that values and said... 
That's not a Christian value. And Dr. Macquarie thought, you know, if God gives me a second chance, if God gives me an opportunity to be right with God, how much more should I extend that to the people around me? The Governor Bly, who had a chequered history and wasn't a governor for very long, Governor Bly emancipated two convicts. Now, emancipated is a very long word which basically means gives freedom to. So he emancipated or gave freedom to two convicts. Lachlan Macquarie emancipated 1,550 converts, convicts. Those, some of those convicts went on to be on the, the first board of the Bible Society, which was the first official organisation ever started in Australia, was the British and Foreign Bible Society. The second was the Westpac Bank. Uh, sorry, the, the New South Wales Bank, the Bank of New South Wales. Both of them had many of the same people on their boards. Some of them were actually emancipated convicts. You can go back to see what Lachlan Macquarie did and see some of the fabulous history that, uh, of the people that he gave freedom to. You know, if you want to look back and say, what, what gives this notion that, we're, that equality is a big deal for us and a second chance is a big deal for us, that, we may not do it very well, but that's kind of part of the DNA of who we are as a nation. I think it's not unreasonable to see what Lachlan Macquarie did and say that is a kind of whole cultural heritage of who we are. Faith was here from the beginning. Faith gave the notion that failure is not final, a second chance is possible. And faith also is transformational. Across our history, people have been transformed by the person of Jesus. Whether it's the stories we've heard in baptisms today here in this church, which have been absolutely fabulous, or the stories that we, you'll see in this series, God continues to change people's lives and that changes our nation. And it's a deep and important part of who we are as a nation. The lives of people transformed by Jesus and then they went on to transform other people's lives. And, it, and it, think about things like politics. Now, I, I remember when we got this, put this series together, I thought, oh, I guess we'll get, you know, conservative, liberal, LNP, uh, kind of the political history there. But I wonder if we can find anybody on the Labor side. I could not have been more wrong. Jesus transformed people's lives and they thought our job is to stand with the, the men, because they were mostly men at the time, working in, in workplaces. There's a guy called W.G. Spence, William Guthrie Spence. He came from the Wimmera in, in, um, in Victoria. William Guthrie Spence was a Presbyterian, teetotaling, Sabbath-observing, Bible-believing follower of Jesus. William Guthrie Spence started the Miners' Union, the Shearers' Union, and the AWU. He was one of those who helped form the Labor Party in Australia. And when I talked to Dr. Paul Rowe about William Guthrie Spence, I said, what was his motivation? He said he believed that Jesus had transformed his life and that on a Sunday, the church's job was to stand with men, because it was mostly men then, but during the week, it was the union's job to stand with men in the same way that the church did. Here is a deep influence of people who are deeply committed to Jesus, transformed by Jesus, and changed the workplaces of our nation. But I'll wrap with a story that you saw a, bit, a, bit, a quick grab of, which was Tony Huang. And Tony was the, the, the Asian young ish man, um, and he's actually Vietnamese. And we interviewed Tony in, in Cabramatta. And what Tony demonstrates 
that faith is transformational. We don't believe that faith is good advice. We don't believe the gospel is good advice. We don't, follow, we don't believe following Jesus is good advice. It's good news. It's something that's happened and it's changed the world. And Tony Huang, was, uh, his parents came out as refugees from, from Vietnam. Uh, they came out as refugees on a boat. Uh, Tony was born in Australia and he has 10 siblings. His dad never learned how to speak English and Tony never really learned how to speak, speak Vietnamese. You don't have to be a genius to work out family relations weren't great. Now, Tony's dad also, as many of the refugees did, worked incredibly hard, long, long hours. Then he would come home at night, drink too much and be abusive to his family. And what did Tony want? He wanted a dad, which is a great story to tell today. He just wanted a dad and he wanted to belong. And he, he, he is disconnected to his dad, disconnected to his family. So he found the only place in Cabramatta where he was living where he could find a place to belong, and that was the gangs of Cabramatta. And by 14, Tony was selling drugs at the uh, heroin at the railway station in Cabramatta. Cabramatta at that time was known as the centre of the drug trade of Sydney and probably New South Wales. People would catch the train, they'd spot the white guy getting off the train, they'd know that that's what he was here for, and he's selling drugs. And eventually he gets caught. And he's sent to, he's sent to prison, like, and when he's taken to the police cell, he rings his mum and says, Mum, I'm in trouble, I've been arrested. His mum said to him, Tony, you got yourself into this, you can get yourself out. He goes to jail for a short time, comes out, there's a battle between light and darkness for Tony, but he decides to pursue the drug trade. And all prison taught him was how to be really good at it. And Tony's, Tony's not just selling it himself, he's got people selling it for him. He's setting up drug houses that his, his, his older siblings, friends, are renting for him. He has a gun. He's, and yet, even though he's making an enormous amount of money, life was miserable. People started to die around him. People were shot around him. He was, he was using heroin himself and had some overdoses and he was really struggling. And, he, and one day he's kind of getting right to the end of his tether and he thinks, I'm going to go down to this church. He had some connection with a Catholic church and it was just down the road from where we interviewed him in the middle of Cabramatta. And he gets to the church and he goes to the church. Nobody's there. It's during the week and he cries out to God. And he says, God, I need a sign. God, I need you to come. God, I need you to change me, to help me. God, I just need a sign from you that you care. Nothing much happened. He went home that night and the next morning he's walking through Cabramatta and he's walking through right where we interviewed him, right in the middle of Cabramatta and there's this group of young people who are singing on the streets of Cabramatta and rapping and Tony, the drug dealer, is walking past. He thought, what is this, you know? As he walks past, one of the young guys shoves a pamphlet in his hand and Tony opens the pamphlet and the pamphlet said, if you're looking for a sign, here it is. God's grace in his life. And he talks to this young guy. And this young guy says, Tony, God loves you. But sin stands in the way. And if you just ask for forgiveness, God is going to come into your life and transform you into the future. And that's when Tony said in that little clip you wouldn't have, that I showed you, Tony said, over there on that bench, I wept and I cried. And I asked for forgiveness and I asked God into my life. And that, uh, every time I watch it, I find it so moving. When you think of the context of his life, and he says it was as if God came down and wrapped his arms around me and said, think of these words, son, it's all going to be okay.
God loves you. God wants to come and transform your life. Talila told us about that tonight. We heard those stories this morning. God is transforming people across our nation and across our communities and he'll transform you tonight. If you come to him and say, God, I'm sorry. Sorry for how I've lived. I know you love me, but I know sin stands in the way. I know that Jesus has done all that needs to be done for me to be right with God. And here's a moment to be transformed by Jesus. Our nation has been built on people who came here who loved Jesus and loved people and want to make a difference. We haven't always got it right, but it's part of our culture. And it can be part of your future. Wouldn't it be great that tonight you found Jesus? Wouldn't it be great if tonight you were transformed? And if God can transform a lonely, drug-addicted, drug-dealing kid, he can change your life as well. And nothing you've done is so bad that God won't go, sorry, you're at the end of the list. Every one of us are in the place where God loves us, will forgive us if we just ask. I want to give you a chance to do that. I'm not going to ask you to stand up, come forward, do anything. I'm just going to ask you to do what Tony did. He did on the streets of Cabramatta. You can do it right now. And that is to say, God, thank you for loving me. Thank you for forgiving me. I'm really sorry. Will you come into my life? I want to lead you in a prayer. And all we're going to do is just be in an attitude of prayer and pray that to your Heavenly Father. If God is speaking to you, if you want Talila's story to be your story, if you want Tony's story to be your story, if you want the culture and the history of our nation steeped in faith to be your story, why don't you pray with me tonight? It's been an attitude of prayer. Is God speaking to you? Is this your moment? Pray these words in your head to your heavenly Father after me. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you love me. I thank you that Jesus died for me. I'm really sorry for how I've lived. I'm sorry for ignoring you. Lord, please forgive me. I pray that you would come into my life. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit. And I pray that you'd give me the courage to live what I say I believe. Jesus, we all come to you tonight, not because we've got it all together or we've got it all right or that we're good enough. We come to you because we know we need you. We need you in our lives. Father, transform us, fill us, rebuild us. And Lord, rebuild our nation and help us to be known as a culture and a nation who follow Jesus and change the world.